Welcome to Talking Beats. I hope you'll subscribe and give us a five-star review on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash talkingbeats. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash talkingbeats. We believe now more than ever in providing a platform for individuality, free thought, and a diverse range of views. By supporting the show this way, you'll get early access to episodes, bonus episodes, and much more. And remember, the conversation is always active at Talking Beats Podcast on social media. On today's program, comedian Michael Ian Black. He's had a varied career in person, on the page, and on the screen, where he starred in The State, Viva Variety, and Stella. In addition to his gift for making people laugh, he's a keen observer of this country, its people, its patterns. And in this spirit, he co-wrote with Meghan McCain, America, You Sexy Bitch, A Love Letter to Freedom. He's not here to talk about funny business. He's here to discuss his new book called A Better Man, A Mostly Serious Letter to My Son. The book, styled as a letter to his college-age son, aims to address the taboo around young boys expressing their emotions sincerely and fully, and how this can cause major problems down the line. What can we do about this? We have Michael Ian Black here to tell us. Welcome. Thank you. So nice to be here. Give us a framework why you wanted to write this book. If we haven't read it yet, we don't have a copy. I'm lucky I do. Why did you want to do this? And and how did you do it in a way that wasn't presumptuous or sort of lecturing, but was so empathetic, which it is, and sincere, which it is? I was very reluctant to write this book. I almost didn't want to write this book and nearly turned down the opportunity to write the book. But It started when uh, the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas shooting occurred, and I had been paying a lot of attention to gun violence over the years since, really since Sandy Hook, when my kids were in elementary school, there was the shooting, which occurred about 10 miles from my house. And then Marjorie Stoneman Douglas happened, and for years I'd been sort of railing against the NRA and against easy access to guns and putting so much of the blame on their shoulders for these events. And I still do. But after, after Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, I just started asking the obvious question, why is it boys who are committing these crimes and not just mass shootings, but all shootings, the vast majority comes from boys. The vast, the vast majority of uh, general crime comes from boys. Violence, that's boys. And so I just started asking why. And I wrote a Twitter thread about it, which got picked up. And the New York Times asked me to write an op-ed about it. So I did. And then a publisher came to me and asked if I'd be interested in writing a book about it. And I, I was really reluctant because one, I didn't feel qualified. I'm not qualified. I'm not a historian. I'm not an academic. I'm not a sociologist or a gender theorist, but I am a dad and I have a son and a daughter. My son was starting his senior year in high school and was about to go off to college. And I thought, you know, maybe I do have something useful to say without being preachy, without being 
some, uh, without holding myself up as an expert. Maybe I can just draw on my own hard-won experiences and offer some kind of guideposts for him as he becomes a young man. You know, it's interesting you you talk about sort of the connection, the the sort of professional training versus not that you have or, or don't in regards to this book. And I, I think about sort of myself having spent the whole life in music playing cello concerts all over the world. And then since this pandemic has been here hosting a podcast, I don't have journalistic training, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I but I, I like to think that I can communicate with people and talk to people and and get information from them in a way that isn't just sort of made for the Twitterverse 30 second sound bites. Because I think a lot of what you're talking about actually plays into the impatience that we feel as a society. Drew Faust was on recently. She said, very impatient. We wanted the vaccine yesterday. And what you're talking about, emotion, showing emotion, being unafraid to talk about emotion, especially for young men, young boys, requires time. It requires patience, right? Well, learning to become who we are is our own life's work. And that is true, I think, for every single person on this planet. And that is a journey that, yeah, necessarily requires patience. It's, it's an unfolding journey. It's something that happens for us every minute of every day. We progress a little, we fall back a little, we progress a little more. Women had a space for them, a kind of larger community that's really been established and anchored over the last five or six generations where they can talk about that aspect of themselves, the aspect of themselves that is female, femininity. Um, They can learn from each other. They communicate with each other. And men don't have that space. Men don't have that community. And so we sometimes think when it comes to boys that they're going to flip a switch one day and be men. But it doesn't work like that. There is a lot of patience required. There is a lot of communication required, a lot of growth required. And, you know, I guess what I'm trying to do with this book is start to help create community for boys and men to be able to talk about these things in a patient way. Why do you think it's so difficult for young males? We're generalizing here, of course. I get, I get that's, that's, that's accepted. I, I don't mean to generalize, but for the purpose of the question, I have to a little bit. Why is it so difficult for young males to express emotion? Just give us a bit of a primer, an education on, on this fundamental issue here. Well, again, like I, I don't want to hold up myself as an expert or an academic, but I'll give you my opinion about it, which is that masculinity, the way we define it in the culture, has so much to do with invulnerability. It has so much to do with demonstrating strength, demonstrating independence. And in doing so, what happens is we build a kind of castle wall around ourselves. That castle wall is not only protects us from things coming in, but it it prevents us from going out. We're building these defenses brick by brick by brick. And it's be, and because we're encouraged to, as boys, we're encouraged to put on a brave face. We're encouraged to man up, to suck it up, to not complain. And the end result of that is when we feel the need to 
communicate vulnerability, communicate pain, to ask for compassion or help, it is viewed as a sign of weakness. And so it's no wonder that boys choose to prefer, uh, prefer to keep the castle walls up. And, you know, these, these fortifications, they start growing from very, very early. You know, by the time they're teenagers, they're fluent in the language of masculinity. They understand and maybe even feel it more acutely than older men, this need to appear invulnerable. So it doesn't surprise me at all that boys and young men have a hard time expressing these complicated emotions. You know, what you're saying is really interesting. It makes me feel so lucky that I grew up with music as the outlet mm. for my emotions. Because when you play music, you can't do a good job. You can't really play what Beethoven or Brahms or Bob Dylan wrote or anything in between unless there's heart involved. Right. If you're doing it as a technical exercise, you only get so far. Well, and you realize that you have to have your whole spirit, your whole background opening up through the music that you can, quote, let it all out through the music. You know that that's the only way you'll be able to transmit the love and the compassion and the depth of the composer to the audience. So I, I, I look back, I think how lucky I was as a, as a kid picking up cello at age five, I'm sort of a middle-aged millennial now, I guess I call myself. Mm -hmm. uh, and and, and I, I wonder how difficult it must be for all of these kids who, who don't have an outlet, who weren't as lucky as I was to have an outlet such as music. So it all happens naturally because music isn't separated from your life. If you're doing that on the cello, you're likely doing it without the cello too. Yeah, it's interesting when I think about like who the really cool guys are, musically speaking, like just in pop culture. And I'm, I, you know, it calls to mind like all the like incredible lead guitarists of the rock bands of the world and how expressive and emotive and vulnerable they are in their playing. But a lot of times we think of them as like these really kind of you know, macho gunslingers who are, you know, parading through towns with their guitars or their drums or with their vocals, whatever they're doing. It's funny that there isn't that we don't judge those guys in the same way that we judge uh, kind of non-artists who do who do what you're who, who don't have that outlet. Like we look at Jimi Hendrix and we're like, yeah, that guy's really cool. But look how vulnerable and expressive and emotive he is in his playing or Jimmy Page or Slash or anybody, you know? Um, well, we, it, it, we don't it, think it, of them as anything uh, anything less than totally masculine. It's absolutely true. I've, I've had some, some what you'd call pretty tough guys from the rock world on this podcast. And you, you know, look at the pictures and you think, wow, that's, that's a really tough looking guy there. But you hear him talk and you realize it's absolutely vulnerable and open it and all the emotions from real life are being poured right into the music and again that's the only way you have sincerity i think is when when real life goes right into the music yeah because it's hard for music to be ironic you know it's hard to play ironically when so much of male culture especially is ironic and detached but what you're describing as a musician is right like for the music to come out as it was intended or if you're the musician as you intend like there's not a lot of 
ironic detachment in music, maybe Devo or something, you know, but most music <laughs> is pretty, you know, it, it, it comes from the heart. It cuts right to the bone. You know, I, I go around sometimes, I play for young people. And I, I remember I was in a, a rural school in Kauai, rural elementary school. I was playing in Kauai and then they, they said, will you come to this school? It's a two hour drive away, only one road on the island. And I brought the cello and I went for an hour and played for 20 minutes and then talked with 150 students for another 40 minutes. These are kids who had never heard music before and a lot of poor kids. It's a poor part of Hawaii. And I'm looking around, I'm seeing the wonder. I'm seeing the emotions opened up. And these are emotions they didn't even know they had, I think. It was just, what the hell is this? I don't know what it is, but I love it. I could feel it. And I think if more kids had that that live, wondrous experience, a lot of what you're doing with this book would happen automatically. Well, I think it would help. I really do. I mean, I think arts are one of the great equalizers, unifiers, expressors. We need art, you know, as much as we need food. It sustains us. People make art in whatever form. We do it instinctively, you know, even if you're just tapping your hand on the tabletop or you're doodling or you're telling a joke, you're making art. It's just fundamental to who we are. And if we valued it more um, as an educational tool, not even, I mean, it it becomes clinical when you even describe it as an educational tool, (laughs) you know, because it's not, it's just, it's no more an educational tool than lunch is an educational tool. It is who we are fundamentally. And if we just integrated that into our own lives more readily and more openly, I do think it could be really helpful for so many people. Do you mind if I read a page from your book? By all means. I I didn't ask you in advance for you to read it, so I I, I have it right here. So let me just read it, and then I want to get you to to use the the common parlance, dig down a little more. So (laughs) let me just, if you will, indulge me briefly. I'm quoting here, girls are sexualized in a way that boys are not. Once girls hit puberty, the culture begins treating their bodies as objects of fascination and desire. Those cultural cues don't just come from men, by the way. Open up any women's fashion magazine and look at the ads. Gucci, Dior, Versace, whatever. The clothes in those ads are all exorbitantly expensive. $1,700 blue jeans, $2,500 handbags, clothing practically no young woman can afford. But who's modeling it? Teenagers. The adult women who read these magazines are looking at aspirational photos of girls The other ads in fashion magazines are for youth serums. It's perverse. Girls are rushed into young adulthood and then asked to remain there suspended in adolescent amber for decades. It's different with men. A boy's manhood is never assumed simply because of his biology. Yes, he will grow. Yes, he will enter puberty and emerge on the other side as a physical man, which is to say he'll be bigger and stronger than a child and capable of reproduction. But his manhood, the qualities that distinguish him from a boy, will remain in doubt until he has somehow proven himself to be a man. What's this all about, Michael Ian Black? It's such a weird paradox, isn't it? And I think every guy kind of understands that our manhood 
is always in question. There are always steps, or I should say missteps, that we can take that will lower the estimation of ourselves in others' eyes in terms of how masculine we are. I think it's because masculinity, as we understand it, has been established as a competition of sorts. Everything we do is competitive. If you drill down far enough to why that is, I believe it goes back all the way to our beginnings. And it has to do with, can I take this guy? Can I dominate this other man and sort of be the alpha, be the tribe leader, be whatever that was? There may have been a time in our history as humans when that was useful. That time has long since passed. It has now become a kind of junk DNA embedded in us. This idea that we have to somehow constantly be in competition with other men as if our survival depends on it. That's why our manhood is always conditional. It's why you can have, you know, the tough cop on the beat who's been there for 25 years. And then let's say uh, a fellow officer were to walk in on him in the changing room at the police station and see him wearing pantyhose. All of that that whole sort of masculine ideal and career could be tossed aside in a second in maybe that culture. It's a bizarre, anachronistic way we have of looking at men that we don't have with women. Women, when they are women, remain women. We don't question their womanhood. You know, we may denigrate women, and we do, men and women denigrate women, but their essential femaleness, I don't think ever really comes into doubt with obviously some rare exceptions, but in general, it never really comes into doubt. Can you talk a little bit about comedy versus what you're doing here? I, I uh, you know, there, there's some funny parts in the book that there, there's sort of undertones here and there, but it's obviously not a joke, <laughs> this book, and it's, it's not set out to be a side splitting a piece of comedy on the page uh, what, what do you what do you do when 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 you sit down and you say well i have a certain message here you have a background as a comedian you're you're a funny person sort of intrinsically are there switches that you turn off i mean how, how does this work I, I struggle with this because obviously i am known as a comedian i am known as somebody who does comedic things and that's great i love that stuff and continue to love that stuff but so much of me worries that if I'm not being funny, I'm not being worthwhile because so much of my identity is wrapped up into it. The way I look at it now is comedy comes from, I think when it's good, when it's at its best, it comes from a place of honesty. And this book is coming from a similar place. I mean, it is. I mean, it's the same place. It's coming from a place of honesty. So although the expressions may diverge, you know, comedy may end up, you know, with a punchline and being funny, this book is, is starting from that same point of honesty and just going as deep into it as I know how to do. 
there's jokes in the book, but it's, you know, it's entitled a mostly serious letter to my son or subtitled mostly serious letter to my son for a reason. It's mostly serious because that's how I knew how to communicate this. And the only way I knew how to communicate this. You wrote a lot of this before the pandemic, I'm assuming. Uh, all of it, yeah. You wrote all of it. I wonder, sort of the obvious question is, is difficult. Would you have changed anything about the book? What is a pandemic taught you about the content of this book? What has the pandemic taught you about tendencies that you write about or, or, or youth or men or any of this? Do you wish you could just go in with a, a little keyboard after the fact and add in a line here or there? Obviously, no book is done. I forget which famous author said it's simply abandoned. Right. Nothing about the central premise of the book would have changed. But the reaction to the pandemic has been such a perfect illustration of the things that I'm talking about as it relates to traditional outmoded masculinity. We see from our leadership down these same castle walls, this same idea of being afraid to show vulnerability in any respect. And so you've got a president who is so wrapped up in his own flawed masculinity that he won't say that for him to acknowledge this disease is, I think, equivalent to him of admitting weakness, admitting his own powerlessness, admitting his own vulnerability. He won't wear a mask because it, I think it, he thinks it makes him look weak. His followers follow him with that same kind of uh, masculine bravado that places their own machismo over their lives because it feels so much more macho to say, I don't give a shit about this pandemic than to say, I'm nervous for my, for my own life and my, uh, and my well-being and the well-being of the people that I love. You can look at them as sort of compare when I talk about masculinity being a kind of competition and which is more masculine, you go, well, the guy who doesn't give a shit is more masculine than the guy who actually cares about his own life. It's bizarre, but it, but it reinforces the premise of my book that this competitive masculinity isn't serving anybody well. It's not just, a, a, if I can just put a finer point. Please do. It's, not, it's, it's not, not that you didn't, but I, I just want to just expand for a second. It's not just that it's, it's a, I don't give a shit. The act of not wearing a mask is, is also become an amazing fuck you in a way, the ultimate fuck you. Sure. But who, but who are they saying fuck you to ultimately, you know, it's, it, I mean, it's so it's to themselves and to their loved ones. It's so corrosive. Well, it's, it's also it's to the people who they run into at, it's also to the people they run into at target when they sure. run through a target in Florida, they're, they're not saying fuck you to themselves. It, it, they're also saying it to, uh, the 91 year old, uh, on social security grandmother buying a Gatorade or whatever. Yeah, uh, that's, that's right. I mean, you know, Trumpism as I understand it is ultimately a, fuck you. It is a way of saying, I don't care about anything um, other than, I guess, my own very, very narrow interests. But in the case of the pandemic, they're saying, I don't even care about that. 
or I'm or or I'm pretending not to care about that because it feels good. I guess it feels good to not care, or at least they think it does. I don't know. I have spent a lot of my own life feeling at times numb to my own suffering and the suffering of others. A lot of my sort of work as an adult and in a parent and as a parent has been learning how to overcome that, learning how to dig into it, understand what it's about and move past it. But, you know, so much of that was in my life was when I was an adolescent in my early 20s. And so much of the people who are following this cult of Trumpism are adults in their 40s, 50s, 60s who, who really should know better. And it's, and it's sad that they don't. It's sad that they haven't done the kind of introspection that wouldn't allow them to behave the way that they're behaving. Michael Ian Black, do you want me to bring you to a happy place temporarily? Sure. Let's talk music because the program is called Talking Beats. As you know, I always talk to everybody on here about what music they love, no matter musician or non-musician. Everybody loves music, the great unifier. I keep repeating that and I always will till I can't talk anymore. Michael Ian Black, music for you. What is it? It's experiential and it's inconsistent. There are long periods in my life where I don't listen to music at all. Periods in my life where I listen to music a tremendous amount. Periods in my life where I listen to music that I haven't listened to before. The only thing that I would say I never do or almost never do. No, I would say never do is I don't indulge in musical nostalgia. I don't listen to songs that I am overly familiar with or that return me to some place with rare exceptions. I'll, you know, maybe a song or two, but I know there's people who kind of get rooted in an era, for example, and usually the era that was their formative years. And I don't have any patience for that. There's just too much music out there. I'm always wanting to understand either what's new or what did I miss? What are you listening to right now? Well, right now I'm trying to teach myself piano and I'm terrible, by the way, absolutely terrible. Me too. Um, but I've got on my piano some Claude Debussy. Is it Debussy? Debussy. Debussy. Pretty, pretty um, good. Pretty good. You, you, could, you could radio announce DJ for a Paris classical music <laughs> station. So uh, I'm trying to kind of understand that music because it's not music that I hear naturally. You know, I don't speak that language. I'm starting to understand the language of classical music a little bit and the different eras of classical music a little bit. But that's what's been interesting to me is sort of hearing these, what to me are new sounds and trying to understand them emotionally. You know, let me just recommend something. You mentioned Debussy. Uh, the great orchestral masterpiece by Debussy is La Mer, which is his his ode to the sea. It's in three movements. It's a incredible piece about the ocean. But there's a reduction. There's an arrangement for solo piano. I wouldn't recommend it maybe for the earliest stages of oh, playing piano. Me, I, will, I will be incapable of playing it, but I might enjoy listening <laughs> to it. But I think you should listen to it because it's interesting. The other day I, I was hearing uh, someone sent me 
a link to a Beethoven symphony that the composer Liszt, Franz Liszt, had arranged for solo piano. And, you know, you say, well, I can listen to 50 great recordings of Beethoven 5. Why the hell do I want to hear a piano play? But I put it on, I put on a great pianist. And somehow the distillation for one instrument, it awoke new ideas that I had about the pieces. The piece had been playing my entire life. I heard it on a piano. Hmm. And I think the same thing you can do with, with La Mer by Debussy to hear the piano version without all the colorations and the diversity of sounds of the orchestra, but it's one keyboard, but the same music, it, it's totally transformative and, and fresh in a way I could never have imagined. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that. Michael Ian Black, you have this book, which is heartfelt, it's emotional. Uh, it, it was really intended for your, for your son. It's, it can be applied to many people that age or different ages around this country. What do you see happening right now? The, the book is coming out fall 2020, uh, recently out. People are going to get it. They're going to read it. They're going to digest it. Are they going to take something from the book with them? For a long time to come. Oh, I have no idea how readers will receive it. I don't know that that's my job as a writer. But what I hope happens is that this book and books like it start to reframe the way we think about boys and men. I'm not looking to start a revolution. I'm not looking to lead any kind of movement. I'm not, uh, I'm not that smart and I'm not uh, that energetic. But I do think that I have this little, little piece to share and that if it, if it can become, you know, a stone in a riverbed, that would be useful enough. What are you optimistic about this fall, this winter? What are you looking forward to personally? For yourself, you, you you've taken a somewhat serious tone this conversation with, with which is fine because we're talking about this book. But but what what are you what gives you lightness, brevity? What are you excited about right now? Here's what's exciting to me right now is I just started learning how to uh, camp and backpack and hike, and it sounds sort of dumb that you would have to learn how to do those things, but I didn't. I never knew how to do them, and so I'm sort of on a self-taught course of backpacking, hiking, and camping. So I went out for the first time last week. I spent a few days out by myself in the woods, and I am excited to get back out there. It's just been a really fun way to connect with myself and connect with the world around me. Well, camping is not so easy. I have a friend I grew up with in rural New Hampshire, a friend right now who's doing the entire long trail in Vermont, which is 273 miles from wow. the Massachusetts border to the Canadian border. Most people do it in a month. He's doing it in two weeks. He said, do you wow. want to go? I said, absolutely not. I, I wouldn't survive. No way. I got to do the podcast. And, and plus, I, I, can't, I can't go 22 miles on tough trail every day for two weeks. It's impossible. But hats off to him. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Michael Ian Black, it's a it's an interesting book. I've been interested to, to look through it. I'm, I'm not the right age for it, but I think a lot of people could just benefit from even reading a few pages here and there. For example, I found your discussion of anti-Semitism very moving. Mm. I found it I found it relevant. I found it moving. Anti-Semitism is one of those things that often is brushed under the rug, sort of. 
with other forms of bigotry. It it all comes together. It all has to be addressed. You, you can't pick and choose, right? Yeah. To me, a lot of the sort of big issues that we deal with socially are part and parcel of the same thing. Um, masculinity is a component. Femininity is a component. These, these uh, you know, anti-Semitism, racism, xenophobia, homophobia, like they're all kind of part and parcel of the same thing. And they all require our attention and they all require work. But if we deal with one of them, I think almost by definition, we start to deal with all of them. And, you know, it's hard to, to, to write a letter like this to my son and only confine it to this one thing, you know, ways to be a better man, because it touches on so many other things. And I'm Jewish. My son is half Jewish. I wanted to talk with him briefly about what I think that means for me and for him in the context of his own masculinity. And one of the things, maybe the biggest thing that it means to me is that we Jews have a special responsibility to look out for other people because so many people fail to look out for us when we needed them and when we continue to need them. So I, I, I offer that to him and hope that he takes it seriously. The book we're talking about, A Better Man, a mostly serious letter to my son, Michael Ian Black, we're talking Right now, at the beginning of the Jewish New Year, Rosh Hashanah, I wish you health, I wish you happiness, and I thank you. And uh, I wish the same for you. Shana Tova. You've been listening to Talking Beats with Daniel Lalchuk. I hope you'll subscribe and leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. The original theme music for this program is by Ronald Markham. The content coordinator is Nathaniel Mosse, Doug Christian is the executive producer. I'm Daniel Lelchuk. See you next time.